This episode is sponsored by National Training Concepts. They offer quality law enforcement training, including instructor courses for less lethal, patrol rifle, diversionary device, and active shooter response. For further information on the variety of classes offered, as well as customized training programs to fit your department's needs, check out their website at ntc-swat.org, or give them a call at area code 714-363-1569. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the California Association of Tactical Officers podcast, where we discuss a variety of SWAT-related topics. We believe tactics are a science, and the art is in how we apply those tactics. My name is Marcus Sprague. And I'm Brent Stratton. This is part two of my interview with the infamous Sid Hale on his new book, Concepts of Less Lethal Force. Sid is truly a mad scientist when it comes to future technologies, tactics, and strategy. His dual careers with the military and the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Office afforded him some incredible opportunities. Our conversation takes a variety of side roads, so hang on. I learned as much from the side roads as our conversation about his book, and I hope you do too. Yes, and how appropriate, even though you're describing a, a military example, I hope everybody catches on to the similarities for law enforcement and and even protest, really, and and uh, how difficult, you know, sometimes that can be. So uh, I thought that the book was is very appropriate for coming out right now. Uh, I found uh, not only to be very educational, uh, but also uh, helped me better articulate uh, the decisions that we make when we're responding to those. Now, one of the lessons you learned that you mentioned uh, in the military, but really has huge effects on law enforcement, and I had never heard this term before, but you you refer to it as the CNN effect, and that's the importance of perception and what role it plays in how the force used was perceived. And uh, obviously, law enforcement has been living with that uh, for a long time, but in particularly right now, uh, you you can't turn on a news channel and not see some self-proclaimed expert or someone not even bothering to say they're an expert talking about their perceptions of of the force used. Can you give me a, a little backstory as to how it was named the CNN effect and, and just a little bit on on how important it is for leaders? and uh, trainers and practitioners to, to understand and be able to articulate that? Yes, that's, that's actually an amalgamation of several concepts. The CNN effect is the military term, and, and you're right. Law enforcement has an advantage here because we always have a civilian oversight. Not so with the military. In many cases, not only do they, do they not have civilian oversight, uh, they don't even have a constitution. For the simple reason is, is they're working outside the continental United States or the United States. And so as a result, they impose rules of engagement, which become the de facto standard of which they're going to be judged for the use of force. Well, one of the things that they do is that they declare ahead of time what it is that they're going to do and how they're going to do it. Certainly, there's going to be adversaries that are going to try to thwart that despite their best intentions and their most noble efforts, and in some cases, accepting tremendous risk, and I'm not just being hypothetical about this, I've been involved in some of these situations, they go to great lengths to avoid what they call collateral damage, but basically the damage to property or the injury to innocence. 
And so as a result of that, when it happens, and I'll just tell you, it will, and it happens in law enforcement, we just don't control enough of the situation to be able to assure that it's never going to happen. And as a result of that, these situations we feel terrible about. But it also gives the adversary the ability to make a case for uncaring and, and indifference. I got to tell you, that is extremely frustrating. So they call it the CNN effect. What that means is they can't ignore not just the fact that they were above uh, suspicion or that they did it the best they could. It's the perception that's the important part. I've written a paper on that, uh, on legitimacy as the 10th principle of war. Uh, law enforcement lives with that. We understand that. You can do everything right and be highly criticized. So one of the things that we learned, uh, especially when I was in charge of the technology exploration project, which was part of this assignment that uh, Jerry Harper had given me, was the fact that we needed to educate the people that were going to be making the decisions. And by that, I don't mean the politicians. Uh, I mean the reporters as influencers, but most importantly, the, the public as voters, the final arbiters. These are the people that were susceptible to radicalization and extremism and militantism if they were not fully informed on the situation. Well, one of the things we discovered was the fact that once they were informed and had formed their conclusions, it was nearly impossible to radicalize them. And so as a result of that, we don't miss many opportunities for using the law, or, I'm sorry, the, uh, the media to inform the public. Now, yes, we've had some with agendas. Uh, I had an incident uh, where I was being interviewed by a number of reporters at Camp Pendleton. Now, interesting enough, they, they meaning the Marine Corps, had asked me to come in to provide the expertise to explain uh, some of the more in-depth concepts, but it was really about the practitioner. It was right after Somalia. While I'm standing there, technically, I'm not even on active duty. I'm just doing it as a favor, but I'm in a military uniform, and so I'm standing there, and if somebody got out of, uh, got out of their depth, uh, they would refer the question to me, and I would explain it, and then they would go back to the practitioners and how it was actually applied. One individual caught my attention in the sense that there were several things, uh, which I can say now, is that it was dealing with the lasers that were classified. We weren't allowed to talk about that. Uh, matter of fact, we'd go to jail if we talked about that. And yet he kept showing a focus and interest in lasers. And I became suspicious of him, even though he was a reporter standing amongst other reporters. And he got me off to one side. And he said, I'd like to talk to you about the lasers. Now, that was kind of interesting because all the other reporters were talking about the operation in general, the lasers being a part of it. And I said, uh, what would you like to know? And he starts going in and it was clearly that he wanted some information that was classified. And so generally we don't say, well, we're not going to talk to you about that, although that is certainly an option. Uh, I was just trying to steer the conversation around the, the classified parts. And so he had a newspaper with him. And I thought to myself, why is a reporter carrying a newspaper? And then I heard a click. And sure enough, he's got a recording inside there. Now that, that's a federal incident. I'm on a federal base, but I pulled my badge out. <laughs> I says, I don't know whether you think you're at, uh, but in California, that's a felony. 
Uh, and then I turned, it was a PIO, a Lieutenant Colonel. And I said, sir, this man is guilty of wiretapping and I will not talk in his presence anymore. And the Colonel turns to this Sergeant and he says, Sergeant, escort this man off the base. Now, the interesting thing about that is, is that they literally, they didn't, they're, it's not like the civilians. <laughs> he got put in a car uh, and he didn't even have time barely to pick up his stuff. They escorted him to, off his base and followed him to make sure he was not coming back. But one of the things that was interesting is that all the other reporters gathered and attempted to apologize on, on their behalf. And I realized that this guy was an anomaly an outlier. Uh, he did not represent the vast majority of the reporters. And I explained the fact that they were getting in areas and he was clearly intended. Turns out uh, they did a background. And sure enough, he had come from out of the state and was attempting to get information to make the military in the United States look bad. But by and large, I've had very few of those incidents. And in many cases, well-meaning reporters say, hey, I was just told this. Is this legit? Once I established the fact that I was an expert, uh, I would say, you know what? That's not legit. Uh, I would not say that. If, if that's the case, tell him to cite his source material. Or I don't know. Uh, call Steve Imes. Here, let me get you his number. Or call uh, Greg Meyer. Uh, these are other people that are of the same opinions that are bona fide experts. One of the things that was interesting uh, that I learned about expertise, because I actually studied it, was the fact that it was domain specific. That means that nobody is an expert in everything. Not me, not anybody. Uh, pilots and doctors are both experts, but I don't ask doctors to fly my plane and I certainly don't ask pilots for medical advice. They're experts in their own domain. Another thing is, is that expertise is relative. For instance, uh, Steve Imes, is probably the expert in the United States on effects. Uh, Greg Meyer on policies and procedures and especially legal implications. My interest uh, has largely been on concepts, which is what I wrote about, uh, and development and, uh, and things like that. I don't have any hesitation at all about uh, recommending somebody else that knows more about this particular subject than I do. So that was one of the things that we needed to do with this CNN effect. And to be honest with you, the military is worse at it than law enforcement. Law enforcement still needs a lot of improvement. We view reporters with suspicion. Nearly every reporters with very few exceptions that I have met really just want to do a, a good job. I actually wrote a couple of things and I actually was considering writing a chapter on some of the things that that we could do. And I'll just give you one example, what I call lighting the backfires. What happens is if we have a new device that's coming out, and for instance, I was at the inception of a lot of the devices, especially the taser, uh, we can anticipate some of the questions that are gonna come up. Why not provide those answers ahead of time in the form of interviews and PRAC app and training? And in some cases, one of the things I used to do was write out information sheets with the source material cited. And I, I still get asked for that stuff to this day. Uh, I cannot tell you how appreciative the, the reporters are. And they cite this stuff because they can just verify that where it came from and incorporate right in. They for sure are not our adversaries. 
And if we treat them uh, collectively based upon the bad actions of a few, we have no right to expect the fact that a few of our own who have tarnished the badge do not represent the rest of us. So the CMN effect is something that the, the military really has to come to grips with, but also law enforcement. And you do see, you do see some development in that where, where we're doing better at engaging and you're seeing more PIOs and smaller agencies. But uh, I agree, there's a lot more we could do. For instance, a lot of these TAC teams will go out and test their own, their own uh, less lethal and chemical agents and they'll videotape it. And that helps them develop their expertise and defend their programs. And yet we don't publish any of that um, or we're very hesitant to invite a reporter to that. And, and a recent example of that is force option simulators, right? We invite our detractors who really based on not being educated on how things work and not ever being in those dynamic situations uh, are critical of our force. And then oftentimes they shoot everybody in every scenario. And they walk away, if they're honest, they walk away going, I had no idea. And you're right. And you know what? You have to respect that. The fact that they were speaking from a perspective that was not the same as yours is not their fault. Uh, they've never been exposed to it. And to be honest with you, even hypothetically, they're never going to be in a situation where we're terrified of accidentally hurting somebody that doesn't need to be hurt or conversely. Uh, underreacting to somebody that's going to hurt us or somebody else. So you're absolutely right. One of the things that's interesting is the fact that the best hypotheticals are still primitive compared to the amount of information and types of information that are incorporated into a decision under a crisis. And we have not succeeded in resolving those issues. But the shoot-don't-shoot shoot scenarios are as close as I've seen to coming, but role-playing, red teaming, I'm far more in favor of that than classroom settings. Yes, and you're seeing our profession get uh, a little bit better, even though I would argue some of our regulatory uh, organizations are still far behind in uh, in that, but I don't want to I don't want to sidetrack us because I know how passionate you are about that. So <laughs> let yeah, me right. uh, don't get me started on that. Bro. Yeah, that's a whole that's another hour podcast. So <laughs> something you wrote in your book that uh, really struck me is uh, something that's been slowly eroding in the education in our profession and decision making uh, processes. So uh, I'm going to quote it here to make sure I get it right. While a case might be made that a threat is not force. The stronger argument is that without force, threat lacks credibility, and so therefore influence. And that really struck a chord with me because we spend so much time on de-escalation and, and training our people to look at time and terrain manipulation as a way to uh, de-escalate and create more time for decision-making and gathering intel. And yet, often we forget that the threat of our presence, and if you don't come out or you don't subject yourself to arrest, we'll use force to make that happen. Uh, we're forgetting that sometimes we don't do things and we'll actually lack that credibility. Is that, does that make sense? I know I didn't articulate that very well, but I'm, I'm sure you're better at that than me. But as soon as I read that, the way you wrote it, I went, 
that's one of the problems with law enforcement today, the challenges that we're having. Yes, you're absolutely right. Uh, and I'll probably give you the one that everybody uh, sees most often is the fact that uh, DAs and city attorneys unilaterally and arbitrarily decide not to prosecute for what they consider minor offenses. And now in a riot, uh, curfew violations, trespassing, blocking sidewalks, I admit those are minor violations. And I'm not opposed to having them dismissed, but I am opposed to having them dismissed unilaterally without input from the police chief or the, the police force and universally. Uh, for the simple reason is it removes the ability to use the threat of arrest and punishment for complying with the law. Even if you see these as minor offenses, they create a competing interest which diverts police attention and resources that need to be applied against legitimate rioters. And so that's just one example. Once you move, remove the threat, what else do we have? And as a result of that, we're forced to find other tools. Well, be honest with you, they're quite limited. And so you're right. To the degree that a threat is credible, it forces the adversary to contemplate the consequences of their actions. To the degree that it's not, it's just dismissed outright. So a threat, there's two types of threats, by the way. The most common and the most powerful is the implied threat, the implicit threat. If I tell you to do something because you're in violation of the law and you choose to ignore that or defy that, there's going to be penalties. Well, when the penalties are removed, the threat becomes pointless, useless. And and that's what I mean by that by that phrase. So And as any any parent knows, even your child whose brain isn't fully developed can absolutely determine that instinctively and leverage it against you. And uh, uh, it's not a strange concept to uh, practicing law enforcement officers because we see repeat offenders uh, not as worried about what's about to happen to them. And even in my little town where I work, uh, I'm arresting the same uh, rioters uh, multiple times because there's no penalty for their actions. It's not unique to small towns. And I'll just tell you, in the 1992 riots, I was platoon commander. And I sent a suggestion to change the rules of engagement right to the Emergency Operations Bureau because we were told initially to avoid making arrests. But what happened was exactly what you encountered was what we were encountering. And I said, this is the functional equivalent of plowing water. They were simply filling, backfilling in uh, by the fact that they were being cited out. I said, this is foolish. When we changed that and started booking them, it was our first gains uh, of getting the city of Los Angeles back under control. It was so well received that our troops in the field nicknamed curfew arrests as reasonable cause looting because we were able to take the people that although were not actually looting off the streets so that the looting stopped. And so too did the arson and the thefts and everything else. This is going to be hard not to d dive real deep into, but I, I really wanted the listeners to at least hear a brief summary of what 
is the order of effects and why is it important, especially today? And uh, I've heard this concept before. Um, not, I was not educated about it at all. And quite honestly, um, it was my research into less lethal injuries as of late and why they occur and uh, really some deep dive discussions with Travis Norton and uh, studying some stuff that you've written that made me realize this is a key that everyone needs to read and understand in order to make better decisions and defend uh, our actions and the outcomes of our, our use of force. So could you just briefly describe what the order of effects are, why it's especially important today for us to understand it? The order of effects deals with injuries. The, I guess you could say this is also an, an amalgamation of a bunch of questions that I got answered, uh, that I got asked at the war colleges. We needed to know how to avoid injury. Well, everybody else was focused on the type of injury, the type of injury being laceration or bruise or broken bone or, or things like that. The problem is, is that it was like looking for the magic bullet, the technology was going to solve this problem. If you could prevent lacerations, does that mean there was going more likely to be a bruise or a chemical burn or a variety of other things? And so as a result of that, we needed to take a more conceptual approach. And so I use these terms, uh, well, the first time is with Penn State with Dr. Uh, John Kenney, uh, who's another brilliant researcher, uh, to explain the fact of how I saw the injuries. The first order effects, let me just describe them, can be directly attributable to the type of force. If you're going to use a baton, that works by pain compliance. And how we inflict the pain is with trauma. We hit them with it. If we hit them, we're going to cause the natural and reasonable consequences of any other type of blunt trauma injury, bruises, in some cases, lacerations. If we hit them close to the surface, or, or I'm sorry, in an area of the body where the bone is close to the surface of the skin, we can expect lacerations because it compresses the tissue between the baton and the bone. So it's really the intent of the user because a baton is functionally the same as a club. Uh, we can call it whatever we want, nightstick, baton, truncheon, billy club, but in reality, it's still a club. So it's really the training, but those are the natural and reasonable consequences, and we can't change that. That is inherent in the type of force. If we don't like those a force, I mean, those, those injuries, we're forced to choose some other force option because that is inherent in that. Those are first order effects. And needless to say, the first order effects are the responsibility of the person that developed the force option. We can't change the way the taser works. We can't change the way OC spray works. That is a natural, inherent attribute of that particular force option. What we are responsible for is the context in which it's used. For instance, if a person is on the top of a house, and I, and I use this, again, one of the advantages of using it from practitioner to practitioner, that's not hypothetical. <laughs> if we had a naked man on top of a roof uh, when I was in patrol, uh, it was a PCP suspect. Their blood pressure raised, they got hot, and for whatever reason, they sought high ground, and they would climb up on balconies and, 
and patios and even roofs, and they took their clothes off because it was hot. Well, what happens is, is that taser's probably gonna have some issues with that because if I shoot them with a taser, for instance, one of the things I can expect them to do is fall to the ground. But in this case, it's not the ground. It could be one or two stories down. Well, needless to say, the activists and the militants and the extremists are quick to point out that we tasered this guy and he died as a result of the use of the taser. Well, you can say that, but it's not completely accurate. What happened was, is the only thing that was directly attributable to the use of the taser is the two puncture wounds from the, from the darts. That's the first order effects. The second order effects though, which could be far worse, are the fact that he fell. And that is true, but is that the manufacturer's fault? Of course not. That's our fault. What happens is we are responsible for second order effects. So the second order effects are contextual. They depend on the circumstances and environment. And to be honest with you, uh, in some cases, we can't change anything. And the, the threat, in some cases, necessitates that the force be used now even with the risk of second order effects being, uh, being serious. And then the third order effects are those that exacerbate an existing health condition. These effects are neither directly related to the force, nor are they dependent upon the circumstances, but rather are related to the health conditions of the subject. One of the things that used to frost me all the time is, well, even now, is the fact if you've got a guy that's used a chemical intoxicant to amp his heart rate up to 200 beats a minute, like cocaine or methamphetamine. Anything that we do is gonna exacerbate that. But whose fault is that? Certainly can't blame it on the manufacturer. Well, how can we blame it on the police officer? A person is responsible for his own health in these conditions. Uh, the, the term that I used, I think in the book, I can't remember right off the top, but one that I've used many times, the metaphor, is a diabetic baker. Maybe this is not the occupation for this particular individual because he's never going to be able to fully experience uh, the things that are gonna make him a good baker. Well, certainly if you're gonna go out and amp your heartbeat up to 200 beats a minute, getting in a fight with a police officer is not gonna improve your health. You're gonna to have to take some responsibility for that. That's a third order effect. And that's how I did that. And I've actually, the book will come out with actually a chart to make it even clearer than, than that without having to go through five or six minutes of, uh, of narrative. Well, I, I think it's important because even though that's common sense and we all recognize that, so often we fail to articulate it. And so often we fail to uh, articulate the fact that we could not mitigate a lot of that situation. So uh, we, we're all familiar with in custody deaths. We're all, you know, familiar with uh, positional asphyxia and some of the things that we do to mitigate those risks. But we're not very good at articulating uh, that we made the decision maybe as a commander, a lieutenant, a sergeant, even even the officer in charge on scene, that we we manipulated that time and terrain to the best of our ability to mitigate that risk. But in the end, those second and third order effects. Uh, we were unable to make them go away. And that's where the unreasonable expectation of TV 
you know, TV shows that depict everything working out perfectly give people a false expectation of what we can actually accomplish in these events. Yeah. As a matter of fact, the people that are the harshest judges are the ones that have the least amount of knowledge. Everything they know about police work, they learn by watching TV. You can have an adversary that is evil, but he's logically evil. And one of the frustrating things apart is, is that a lot of the adversaries that we're dealing with are not logical. In some cases, they're not even capable of being rational. So it's quite frustrating for people to say that we don't care, we're rushing, uh, without looking at these circumstances in their totality. This is just a quick method for not only identifying the types of injuries, but who's responsible for preventing them. And in some cases, it's the adversary themselves. Yeah. And, and I, so that's why I wanted to bring it up. I think that's a great section for people to know. And it kind of segues into, I believe this was the next section of your book, but it was, it was definitely something I wanted uh, you to just briefly discuss because uh, again, I, your intent was this book to be a textbook. And I, I thought it was probably one of the easiest textbooks that I've ever read, but uh, I wholeheartedly agree. It's a textbook. It's a must read for explaining uh, the why of what we do and helping us articulate those decisions better. And so one of the things I know that we've talked about in the past, you and I, it's something that our profession struggles with, and that is risk. So we, in, in your book, you talk a little bit about probability and exposure. And I believe that that's something that we're missing uh, as a profession about risk. And you know, we've talked. I don't want to sidetrack us too much, but we talk a lot about how our profession has inherently designed itself to promote risk-averse people, even though we are on we are in the risk business. And so, one of our catchphrases at Cato, we talk about a lot, is that we we can't as, as SWAT leaders or tactical officers, canine officers, or we we can't make that risk go away for our community. We can only mitigate it and come up with these solutions that are the safest for the community. Uh, the public and the suspect, but we can't make it go away. We can only mitigate it. And so I really thought the the, the section you talked about probability and exposure is a, is an important thing that, that I wish I had learned to articulate in that way. Would you, can you briefly describe that for me? Uh, yeah. And, and technically I could answer with all of these with one or two phrases, but without having an understanding of it, it sounds too scientific to be practical. And this whole book was written to be practical. And you're right, that was my intention from the beginning. So to answer your question, first we have to understand that risk is really just the likelihood of an adverse event occurring. But risk is not in its most irreducible form. There's really two parts of risk, exposure and probability. Probability is usually expressed as a ratio or a percentage. For instance, if you're dealing with uh, traffic accidents, if you have a car, well, just say an intersection, if you have an intersection where uh, one out of every hundred cars that pass through that intersection has a major uh, injury, the chances, the risk of that accident occurring is one in a hundred or one percent, a ratio or a percentage. And so we reduce that likelihood that risk by 
enforcing right-of-way violations and speed violations, and maybe even rerouting the intersection or changing the mechanical part, but the, the likelihood of that going down. While this is happening, you, because you're aware of that risk, are worried about your teenage daughter or son driving through that intersection because you know that it's dangerous. It's got one out of every hundred cars. And so you forbid them. You're not allowed to go there. You're, if you're going to have to go to this other place, you cannot use that intersection. That deals with exposure, the likelihood of, of being uh, injured as a result of that. And that reduces it to zero as long as you don't have the exposure. So one of the things we have to understand is that while law enforcement is typically responsible for the probability, uh, the people themselves are typically going to take the action of exposure. Uh, another good example would be uh, gang members in a, an area of the city. What happens is, is that it's affecting the businesses because while we will refuse try to reduce the probability of the gangs interfering with legitimate businesses, the customers are also going to take actions and they say, I'm not going there. I'm not taking my kids there. I'm not letting my wife go there. So it actually, uh, the citizens are taking. So the important thing when you're dealing with non-lethal options is to understand that all of these things are accompanied with risk. There's not only risk of injury to the suspect, but risk to the injury of the user if the force option is not effective. So with understanding that, uh, we can compensate for that with things like lethal overwatch or standoff distance and some of the other things. And that was one of the reasons that I had to stay with the concepts. As a matter of fact, uh, after the manuscript had already been submitted and accepted, uh, the publisher asked uh, for me to incorporate some of the more current affairs. But the problem was is that the book is on concepts and not applications. Concepts are universal, applications are contextual. And as a result of that, I kept resisting that simply because the concepts are far more durable than the applications. So as a result of that, uh, the risk is staying with the concepts. And that's why I'm using the applications to describe how the concepts work, but they're just contextual. Thank you. No, that's a, that's a, a great explanation. And I think uh, you balance that well. You have great practical uh, applications in there and examples, but I agree. Uh, it's the concepts that are important. So you brought this up earlier and I'm going to quote it because uh, I thought it was important uh, as, a, as a great takeaway. When it comes to non-lethal force options, the standard is not perfection. The standard is the alternative. Yes, you've got it right. I can't say it any simpler and you can use it or change it around or whatever you mean. But what it represents is the fact that we would love to have a perfect force option. Uh, it does not exist in any form. Even the, the perfect non-lethal option is going to be critical. When it finally appears, somebody is still going to be upsetting with it. In the meantime, whatever it is that we're using, anything that provides an advantage over it, either because it's more effective or more safe, or both, ideally, is going to be appealing to us because the standard is going to be the alternative. It's not perfection. Probably the best example I'll give you with is uh, modern time is with this tear gas. 
the militants and even some of the courts have ruled that law enforcement can't use tear gas or can't use impact munitions. While that is a legitimate prerogative for the decision makers, it leaves law enforcement with the problem without the ability to resolve them. And so they're forced to choose either by ignoring the problem or by choosing an option that is either less effective or less safe. If that is acceptable to the decision makers, we'll go ahead with that. But to be honest with you, what I actually think will happen is, is that either more force, more primitive and uh, more primitive and harsher types of force will be used, or contrary, law enforcement will simply say, we don't have the ability to solve that problem, and so we'll just let it continue. So uh, this has been a great social experiment. I am happy in one respect is that people were going to get an untarnished view of the consequences of tampering with a complex system of which they are not, not only knowledgeable of, in many cases, they're not even familiar with. People will get a chance to see for themselves, and maybe this will become decisive in nature. Also, as I've already mentioned, I hope it becomes the impetus for actually spending some money and getting some better devices. One of the advantages of being on the military side of this and having a clearance is we have devices out there right now that are still debilitating and not incapacitating, but more effective than anything we've got out there and are not being used simply because nobody wants to be the one to bell the cat. I think now we're getting to the point where we'll say, well, if you don't want tear gas, look at the active denial system. That's a great point. And I, and I appreciate you expanding on that a little bit. Hey, as a, as a conclusion to our conversation, and again, I recognize we're just scratching the surface here. Towards the end of your book, you tell a story about a vehicle pursuit in Los Angeles. And you use that incident to illustrate uh, a number of concepts for the use of force. Would you mind telling us that story and just maybe just scratching the surface on, on the importance of that? Because uh, especially in today's day and age where everything is about de-escalation, and, uh, you know, one thing uh, you and Daryl Evans like to say is that your, your adversary always gets a vote. And uh, I know that wasn't the main takeaway of your story, but it's still one that reminded is, is a great reminder and something in law enforcement I think we need to do better at explaining to the public. And I think your story would be a great kind of great way to end the podcast on. It's a true story. Uh, in fact, it's not just the just one story, but it's it's how I chose to end it because it doesn't fit people's idea of how law enforcement actually works. And so it gave me an opportunity to really talk about some of the heroes behind the scenes that are being unfairly portrayed by people with an agenda. In this particular case, I was uh, the captain, the commanding officer of our uh, SWAT teams, the Special Enforcement Bureau. And one of the things, having spent many years studying non-lethal options, is that when tasers became available to our department, I asked for some of them for SWAT. Now, interestingly enough, I got kickback uh, because nobody at the upper levels understood that SWAT was getting into situations that could be solved non-lethally. It's the same thing that I explained with, with the military. Most of the situations we got in were lethal in nature, and I would admit that. But 
I asked to get the same amount of tasers that would be given to a patrol station, which at that time, because we were buying them 200 at a time, was only 10 that we could go to the, the patrol stations. Now, interesting enough, I had both a commander and a chief above me that understood the intent and the concept more so than, than many others and basically overruled. And I got 23 tasers and I immediately put the, uh, the SWAT personnel into the training uh, and they got authorized and authorized to carry them. The day after this was authorized, Blue Team, in this particular case, Scott Walker, was in charge of Blue Team, were assigned to handle a situation in which a carjacker was fleeing and it was really a suicide by cop. And for those of us who have been doing this for a lot of years, it's one of those things that it's tough to describe to say with definity that you'd want. But on the other hand, they will provoke a situation in which they will get killed. And I'll be honest with you, had he done it 24 hours before, he would have succeeded. He almost succeeded even then. In this particular case, they tried everything. They stopped the car. They used tear gas. He threw the tear gas out. They threw it back in. Uh, they hit him with impact munitions. Uh, he basically shrugged off the effects. Uh, he had a knife. He was stabbing the car and eventually he tried to stab the SWAT team. And literally they're almost begging him. We had a negotiator, we, we tried everything. And the, the thing that was interesting in this particular case was not so much that it was unique, but that it was all on TV. Because the situation had been going on for so long, it was being filmed. And he kept getting closer and closer uh, until finally the team leader himself, Scott Walker had done the training. And he stepped out and hit this guy with a taser and dropped him. They ran up, they uh, arrested him, and they go in. Now, I'll tell you something that wasn't in the book. Uh, and, I, and this is for a law enforcement audience. I was the captain. I saw Scott the next day. Uh, he'd been up all night. And I asked him about the situation last night because it was all over the news. This guy was moved to tears by the fact that he didn't have to kill this guy. Scott was literally vibrating with excitement. He was excited. He, he says, I'll never go to, into the field without these things. And he went on and on and on. And because it was still a, a news item, uh, I used him as the spokesman because there was no way that you could look at the relief uh, and feel the, the satisfaction of having taken a situation that had historically required lethal force and seeing the, the relief in Scott's face and demeanor to the point where it was moving. And so what happened was, is that uh, I called Scott, uh, said, hey, I wanna use your name and I wanna use this to illustrate uh, how important non-lethal force is and, and provide a little human side to this. He says, well, I'll tell you the rest of it. One of our deputies was at the court testifying. I mean, I had the whole, he had the whole SWAT team there. And he said, the guy's brother recognized the deputy in court and called over and said he wanted to thank him for not killing his brother. And it happened all over again. This deputy uh, was also moved by the fact that they were seeing a side of people that they didn't see on TV. They didn't see the terrible price that we pay when 
we have to take a life. And to be honest with you, I've had our psychologists talk to my teams on more than one occasion. And one, one time I asked my long rifle who had shot two people on two different occasions about five days apart. I said, what do you think about uh, when you kill that guy? And he says, I don't think about killing this guy. I think about saving this other one. Well, the psychologist said that's a very healthy way of looking at that. But she also said it was something very interesting about the, the fact that people that are attracted to law enforcement are also a lot more susceptible to PTSD and, and all the other ailments that are related for the simple reason is they care. Uh, they care about the individuals. Uh, just about any of them could find a safer occupation uh, and one that uh, would pay better but uh, they're drawn to public service and they're making these hard decisions. And it's particularly frustrating when they're criticized by people that haven't got a clue. They haven't seen the football since the coin toss, but are all of a sudden the experts in how this is played. So as a result of that, I chose that particular story to conclude the, the book. Basically, because I believe that most police officers are like that, male and female, and that we are all being unfairly targeted. And I thought this is just one example. But I will say that the book was written to be short. Uh, it's only 200 pages. And most of that, well, I shouldn't say most of it, a lot of it is both in glossary and in index. I wanted the ability for the practitioner to find the answer to a problem without reading the entire book, either by looking it up in the index or looking up in the glossary and then being referred to as much in depth as they wanted to go. So with that, I hope we succeeded. But that was that was the point of this story is to to pull everything together. And I and I think it did. That's why I asked you to share it. And Sid, I, I want to thank you again for uh, spending spending your time with me talking about your book. I think uh, it's more important now than ever. Even though you didn't set it out for this timing, it's perfect timing. I think it is a textbook, but I, I absolutely think that it was uh, set for the practitioner. It was easy to read. It flows well. And, it, and I've, I've highlighted so much of it so that I can better use those terms and understand uh, how the limitations are. And it's not that we don't often do the right thing, but we don't explain why we do the right thing. And this book is going to advance that for less lethal in, in the same way, in my opinion, that, that fuel command and sound doctrine did. So that being said, I wanted to say thank you. And, uh, again, tell us when your book comes out and where we can find it. And we'll put some links at the bottom of, uh, our show notes for this. So folks can uh, pre-order cause it's available for pre-order already. It's already available for pre-order. Uh, it's available at all the, the big outlets, uh, Barnes and Noble, Amazon, uh, as a pre-order. Um, it'll be shipped or, and released on October 20th. If it has value, it'll also be available in volume directly from the publisher. And it'll be out in an electronic form uh, shortly afterwards. One of the things that uh, the publisher agreed with me on this time was to keep the price as low as we could. So I think it's going to come out at about $20. Great. And also, uh, for those of you listening for information on this topic, you can become a member of Cato and many of Sid's uh, articles and uh, books and other uh, non-lethal studies are in the Cato library. 
Thank you for listening to the Cato Podcast. To become a member of Cato, check out our website at catonews.org. If you have a topic suggestion, please send them to podcast at catonews.org. If you enjoyed the show, please share it with a friend and rate us on the platform of your choice.